Chapter Thirteen of East by West by Henry W. Lucy. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Thirteen: Some Japanese Trays. As we steamed into the bay of Yedo, Yokohama was dimly discernible under lowering skies and through the mist of incessant rain. In crossing the Pacific, we had been cheered by the sight of many sunsets of ever varied beauty. However dull or wet the day, the sunset was rarely missing. Now the sun seemed to have set for ever. It had, we learned on landing, been raining for a fortnight, which was a little hard on Yokohama, since it had had its rains in June and July, and this was its season for fair weather. One of our fellow passengers was from Glasgow, and as we stood in the custom house, sheltering from the pitiless rain and wondering how far we should be successful in making a dash into a Drinrickshire without getting wet through, he was visibly affected. It is just like Glasgow, he murmured, thinking of the many months that had separated him from home and friends, fog and rain. But the rain was the only thing homelike in the scene. As the Coptic steamed up to the boy, we caught some indefinite glimpses of Yokohama, with the green bluff which Europeans have wisely marked for their own, and where they live in pretty bungalows set in cool gardens flanked by tennis lawns. Even through the rain, the bay was a fine sight. All the navies of the world might ride at anchor here safe from the winds that mock at the name of the Pacific. Half a dozen men of war were already anchored, notably a Russian ironclad, one of the most beautiful things afloat. England was represented by a single ship, two having been ordered off to Hong Kong, in view of possibilities that might be created by the trouble agitating France and China. There were ships of larger or smaller tonnage from American and British ports. A Mitsubishi steamer came puffing in our wake, arriving from one of the southern Japanese ports and going north at daybreak. One smart steamer moored to the boy must have been an object of special interest to the Mitsubishi people. She is the first comer of a splendid fleet of sixteen steamers, now building on the Clyde and intended to run in competition with the Mitsu line. By October 1884, this fine fleet of steamers will be coasting round Japan. Long before the Coptic was made fast to the buoy, the bay was alive with sampans, the heavy-looking native boat with the crews clamorous for fares. The boatmen, standing in the stern, vigorously working the colossal oar that sculls the sampan, were dressed for a wet day. It is not many years since the Japanese native costume amongst the lower orders was limited to a hand's breadth of cloth tied about the loins. The new order of Japanese, impregnated with Western ideas, sternly sets its face against this habitude. The upper classes, laying aside the graceful Eastern robes which their fathers wore, have attired themselves in European dress, which they wear without grace. There seems no reason why, given a capable tailor, a Japanese gentleman should not look well in broadcloth. As a matter of fact, 
he never does from the mikado down to the merchant or tradesman a japanese who wears european dress seems to have bought his suit at a ready-made clothing establishment happily the ladies with instinctive good taste more generally retain the native costume with its graceful lines and soft colours when they lay it aside for european clothes they lose all their natural taste in colours and come out with painful contrasts the lower classes compelled by imperial edict to go about clothed keep to the native dress and so obtain a vast advantage over their superiors in station in fine weather this dress is with the men exceeding scanty consisting of a blouse and blue cotton drawers tightly fitting and extending halfway down the thigh on a day like this they put on wonderful straw cloaks reaching to the knee whilst their heads are thatched with wide straw hats of saucer shape thus arrayed with bare brown legs and brawny arms wielding the gigantic oar they look like a regiment of man fridays expectant of robinson crusoe's arrival in the coptic and eager to welcome him back to island life presently when the rain ceased the cloaks were dropped off straw hats pitched aside and they stood there some forty or fifty of the stalwartest men in either hemisphere they do not run much to height but their limbs are magnificent and their energy tireless all ages were represented in the sampans from boys of eight or ten with tremendous biceps and stout calves to men so old and wrinkled that they would seem past the time at which these heavy oars could be usefully wielded one old gentleman a priceless subject for a painter sculled in with the first of the fleet having a bright blue cotton handkerchief tied round his wrinkled face a straw cloak on his shoulders and apparently nothing else the object of attack was the coolies who might be going ashore and the victory was to the boatman who got his sampan nearest to the ship's side and so secured the chance of the first coolie disembarking there being no provision for holding on to the steamer the only way of keeping in place among the heaving mass of sampans was to keep sculling old blue cotton handkerchief after racing across the bay stood in the stern of his sampan with brawny muscle corded legs set wide apart sculling for his life whilst in the bows thrown out in skirmishing order was his grandson or perhaps his great-grandson fishing for coolies with a boat-hook i was on the steamer for nearly two hours after she was attached to the boy during which time the crowd of sampans were struggling and heaving on the port side amid an incessant din of voices whenever i looked over the side there was the blue cotton handkerchief bound about a wrinkled face that seemed to be carved deep out of mahogany the old man with lips firmly set and eyes anxiously fixed on the throng of coolies sculling as if he had just taken the oar in hand and it was featherweight the coolies had an uncommonly lively time of it 
I could not make out upon what plan selection was made, whether the coolie chose the sampan or the sampan man the coolie. All that was to be seen at brief intervals over the bulwarks was a coolie bundling into a sampan, where half a dozen brawny arms seized him, and amid a fearsome clamour handed him about till he was finally deposited in a boat and was presently rowed away. One who had evidently got himself up with great care, probably having a circle of visiting acquaintance in Yokohama, had undergone this process of selection, and was sitting, pale and heated, smoothing out his umbrella, wiping his spectacles, and shaking his clothes into shape. He had had a bad time of it, but it was over now, and he would soon be on dry land. Suddenly the clamour recommenced. He was seized upon and hustled, spectacles, umbrella, and all, into a sampan three boats off, where five of his compatriots were already seated. From this and one or two other incidents, I surmised that the sampan men arranged among themselves to take parties of coolies who were going together to various parts of the town, and that they were sorting them out as if they were a consignment of apples. We had two Japanese passengers in the saloon of the Coptic, young fellows who had been travelling and studying in Europe and the States. They had all the amiability and gentleness of the Japanese, modest, retiring, and almost pathetically polite. In rough weather they were always being blown about the decks, pulled short up by running against portions of the rigging, and in various ways being made light of. Coming on deck shortly after we were anchored, I beheld a strange transformation scene. The elder of the Japanese was leaning in easy, dignified attitude against the gangway. The younger one was standing talking to him bareheaded, and before him, in semicircle at respectful distance, stood an extraordinary group of Japanese. They were five in number. Each man had a large paper umbrella stuck under one arm, and a hat of straw under the other. Three wore straw cloaks, one had a musty brown cloak, and the fifth, the bow of the party, wore a pair of top boots and a gorgeous green blanket. I noticed, and the accuracy of the observation has been abundantly confirmed in various parts of Japan, that when a native draws on a pair of top-boots, he thinks he has done all that can be fairly required of him in the way of dressing. But the law is stern, and as the day was wet, the green blanket had been superadded. Nevertheless, as he moved about and bowed, unexpected glimpses were caught above the top-boots of sun-tanned flesh. Whenever the elder Japanese spoke, all the five men bowed down to the ground. If, without speaking, his glance wandered in any particular direction, the individual so honoured bowed and smiled and chortled in his joy. After this scene, the secret about the elder Japanese could no longer be kept. He was a prince in disguise. Young as he was, 
he had been a daimyo at the time of the revolution endowed with vast wealth and almost boundless power he had never stirred abroad without an escort of two sordid men when the revolution came the daimyos accepted the situation with praiseworthy philosophy they abandoned their rank and state took government bonds in part payment of the value of their lands and this young prince like some others contentedly went forth to see the wonders of the western world the five men were some of his old retainers probably two sordid men who hearing of his arrival had come to do him homage the custom-house at yokohama is based entirely upon european models except in the matter of roughness or incivility one of my trunks the least battered after running the gauntlet of the american baggage service they asked to have opened but the whole thing was over in a few minutes and we were at liberty jinrikisha men were patiently waiting not pestering passengers with demand for preference but standing quietly in a row dumbly hoping they might obtain it the jinrikisha is perhaps the most prominent and certainly not the least useful institution of japan it is like an enlarged perambulator placed upon two light wheels there is a hood movable backwards or forwards at pleasure and on a day such as that on which we landed the fare is covered in from the rain with a curtain of oil paper let down in front for steed you have a little jap all bone muscle and good temper who trots along at about six miles an hour and can if you will hire him take you forty or fifty miles in the day coming up smiling in the morning for another journey the fare inside the bridges of yokohama practically the length and breadth of the city is equal to a trifle under fivepence you can hire a jinrikisha by the hour for sevenpence halfpenny the mode of locomotion is pleasant and convenient and with lingering reminiscence of the london cabby and the united states hackman it is a positive pleasure to have for companion a jinrikisha man he takes his poor pittance with a smile and a bow and cheerfully trots off without thought of contingency of a supplementary copper he is as merry as a child and when two or three run together they laugh and talk like schoolboys in common with their nation they have a keen sense of the humorous or the ridiculous and to judge from the frequency of their laughter they are constantly finding it robinson crusoe in saucer hat and short straw cloak dripping over bare legs took me to the hotel and all the way i could hear him amid the gusts of wind and the patter of the rain chatting and laughing with his companions on a day like this there was nothing to be done but shopping and after delivering a few letters of introduction we went out to the silk stores this time my jinrikisha man was a butterfly being with a bright blue cotton handkerchief wound about his head and a yellow oil-paper waterproof which glistened transparent in the pouring rain 
the five retainers of the deposed prince wore white stockings with the big toe in a place all to itself for convenience of tying the straw sandal the people walking about the streets with paper umbrellas and paper or straw cloaks wore wooden patterns standing fully three inches off the ground to western ideas it would have seemed better if there had been less clog and more trouser but it was very wet and there was no use in spoiling any clothing that might possibly be dispensed with the jinrikisha men wore nothing on their feet but straw sandals with which they gaily splashed through the mud, the water running down their bare legs in never-ceasing streams. The next morning Yokohama underwent a glorious transformation. The clouds had rained themselves out, and the sun, like the Mikado breaking the bonds in which he had long been held by the shoguns, had a complete restoration. We rose early, got into jinrikishas and gaily bowled along for a trip round the bluff as we crossed the bridge over the canal a few paces to the right there was fuji with snow-cap on lifted far up into the blue sky this famous mountain of japan is seventy miles distant from yokohama but it seemed close enough to invite us to a run there and back before breakfast. Before mounting the steep to the bluff, we passed down a street wholly occupied by the Japanese. Yokohama is a foreign settlement. It was a fishing village when, in 1859, it was selected as the site of one of the treaty ports. Foreigners, among whom English predominate, have built its principal streets, its hotel, its shops, its banks, and its clubhouse. Walking along the Bund, there is nothing except a stray Japanese or a group of jinrikisha men to contest the assumption that this is an English colonial street. Save for the same striking feature in the scenery, Main Street might pass for a British thoroughfare. But cross the bridge, Follow the street that skirts the canal, and you are in a new world. The street swarms with its residents in a manner peculiar to Eastern life. In an English street there are to be seen the people who may chance to be passing, whilst glimpses are caught through windows of others in the shops and houses. In Japan the people in the houses are as much on view as those actually in the street. The first duty of a Japanese householder or his deputy on rising in the morning is to take down the front of his house. It is literally slided away, and the interior left in full view, with whatever domestic operations may be going forward at the moment or through the day. This peculiarity of house architecture is not confined merely to the front. The inner rooms are made up on the same principle. There is a groove in the floor along which a panel slides. When night comes and bedrooms are required, the panel is slided along, and there is the room. In the morning, when it is time to get up, and sometimes, as travellers in the interior find to their embarrassment, before it is time to get up, the panels are slided back 
and what was a bedroom is an unenclosed space these panels called shoji are made of lattice-work of wood the open spaces being covered with paper tightly stretched this is the only wall of the inner rooms the outer wall front and back being composed of sliding shutters or wood the shutters were drawn back the bedroom walls had disappeared and all the houses were open as we drove through in the fresh early morning all the men and women were at work and all the children carrying babies in this street as in all other japanese thoroughfares the number of children is astounding salt lake city is childless as compared with any japanese quarter whether in town or country the stranger is startled by the first impression that all the girls are born double-headed to see a girl from three years old up to twelve is to make the discovery of a second and smaller head apparently growing on her right or left shoulder on closer inspection this turns out to belong to a baby which she is carrying strapped to her back no portion of it visible except its head and face i could not learn at what age a girl is held to be capable of carrying a baby but i have seen scores whose age did not exceed four staggering along under the weight of an infant brother or sister bound to its back this is the national form of carrying what in england are known as infants in arms the japanese equivalent to the phrase would naturally be infants on back i do not know how it is for the infant but it is evidently a very convenient way for the bearer women carrying children can and do go about their daily work as if they had no encumbrance whilst the children play about the streets just as if the baby on their back were a wart or other insignificant natural excrescence i never saw in japan a baby held in other fashion with single exception of a man in oyama who dandled one in his arms and he i subsequently ascertained was a person of weak intellect amongst the most striking of the costumes in the moving scene was that of men in blouses with a sort of white brick dado below the belt and between the shoulders a circle also of white marked with cabalistic signs from a back view they look like movable targets for archery practice but they were merely labourers in particular trades or engaged by firms whose badge they wore there was among the population a larger proportion of trouser than obtains among jinrikisha men but this article of dress considered indispensable in some countries is held in but light esteem in japan where it is worn there is an evident desire to make as little of it as possible it is cut off short with surprising determination and where worn down to the ankle a compromise is effected by having the cloth made almost skin tight when the waiters at the grand hotel brought me my first meal i thought i was about to be entertained with a saltatory performance they wore black serge tights of the cut familiar in the stage costume of male members of the Vokes family 
I should not have been at all surprised if one had incontinently passed his leg over the head of the other as he walked past him with a dish of chops. But they had only brought in tiffin, and left the room in the usual fashion after placing it on the table. Many of the women add to their natural charms by blacking their teeth. This is the sign of the married state and has a particularly hideous effect. I'm told it is now going out of fashion. The younger girls, when dressed for the day, touch the front of their underlip with a brush dipped in vermilion. Our jinrikisha men made their way through the throng without running over any children, a feat accomplished only by dint of incessant shouting. We walked up the hill, and finally came out on the race-course, on the way obtaining a bird's-eye view of Yokohama. Coming back, one of the jinrikisha men politely invited us to visit a garden-shop. Not desiring to buy anything, we were reluctant to enter, but yielded to pressure, and were received by the nursery gardener with profound courtesy, not abated by one jot, when we left without a chrysanthemum pot or a flowering shrub under each arm. Yet the temptation to buy was very great. There were wonderful chrysanthemums, familiar as home friends in colour and shape, but in size and variety exceeding our choicest growths. Besides these, the chief growth of the garden, there were a variety of clever and artistic arrangements of ferns and grasses in china pots and dishes of divers shape, with pieces of rock or tiny stumps of trees standing in cool water, and presenting within the space of a few hands' breadth a charming bit of sylvan scenery. We skirted the bluff, looked down on the harbour, its quiet waters glistening in the morning sunlight, and reached the level road by a steep hill, in which was a joss-house. Looking in, we saw, kneeling before a tinseled altar, two men, one reciting prayer in a monotonous voice, and the other beating a drum, whose tireless tum-tum-tum, tum-tum-tum, we could hear halfway down the hill. Returning through the narrow street by the canal, the busy scene had grown in colour and motion with the advancing day. The houses were full of people, and yet the street was thronged. The domestic arrangements in a Japanese shop trench closely upon those of trade. The family sit in a group on the floor, the men, and not unfrequently the women, smoking. A small square box, containing burning charcoal and a receptacle for tobacco ash, is an indispensable article of furniture in every sitting-room, whether it be shop or kitchen. The pipe, made of metal, has a bowl about as broad and deep as the nail of the little finger. It holds sufficient tobacco to afford the gratification of three whiffs. These taken, the ashes are knocked out and the pipe laid down with as much satisfaction as if the owner had had an honest smoke of an hour's duration. Out of doors, the Japanese carries his pipe in a leathern case, which, together with his tobacco pouch, is fastened at his girdle. 
many even among the poorer classes have at the end of the cord on which pipe and pouch are slung a piece of carved ivory or bone the tobacco smoked by the japanese is home-grown and to the british taste flavourless save for a soupçon of chopped hay tiny whiffs of smoke were going up from many of the groups squatted on the shop floors waiting for custom the street was full of pictures here was a woman washing vegetables in water drawn from the street well with barrel top and pulley and rope overhead to haul up the bucket next door was a cooper's shop with an attractive store of the buckets and dippers which abound in japanese households further on was a man mending tins on the opposite side of the road a woman was spreading out rice to dry on mats her neighbour equally industrious was carefully stretching on a board the blouse she had been washing for her husband here was a butcher's shop with chrysanthemums blooming among the shoulders of mutton and ribs of beef many of the joints had attached to them long strips of paper on which japanese characters were traced in a bold hand they probably stated the price and recommended the quality of the meat but to the newcomer there was a strange incongruity between this learned-looking calligraphy and a plate of mutton chops the tailors in the shop next door seemed familiar enough as they sat cross-legged on the floor busily stitching of course the sixteen-shilling trouser is unknown in japan but the japanese when fully dressed wears a surprising number of garments the making of which keeps the tailors busy another thing that had a home look was the fruit shops which as in many parts of london were open to the street but in the fruit shops as in all the others the floor is raised only a few inches from the pavement which gives the general idea that the people are sitting in the street itself there was a grocer's shop with father mother and three children squatted round the hibachi each with a hand over the glowing charcoal for though the sun was up the morning air was keen the man pounding rice next door had no need of artificial means to keep him warm nor had the man carrying water in two tubs slung on a bamboo pole and carried across his shoulder this seems an uncomfortable way of getting along with portable property but it is an ancient habit with the japanese and he makes light of it if the weight be unusually heavy he eases the burden on his shoulder by thrusting a smaller bamboo under the larger one using it as a lever which rests on his other shoulder the end being held in his hand all kinds of things are carried in this way there passed us in the street what seemed like a bed of chrysanthemums but was really a coolie carrying innumerable pots on two trays slung from bamboo in the manner described there were several cake and sweet shops whose contents were more curious than toothsome but they had attractions for the countless double-head children who stood around the larger head looked longingly at the bountiful stores 
whilst the smaller one stared out into space, its owner not yet having reached the age when it could covet sweetmeats. Through this bright and bustling scene, the jinrikisha men ran to and fro, laughing and chattering, as if it were rather fun than otherwise to be beasts of burden. End of chapter 13